All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Lions Guide Podcast, where we take on topics in performance and personal growth by exploring the success stories of our guests and the lessons they've learned. I interview other subject matter experts and also review books and other resources to help us all establish clarity, build courage, and lead the way. I'm your host, Dale Walls, founder of Lions Guide. And on this episode, we've got Mr. Michael Sugru, who is a veteran Air Force security officer. Uh, security forces officer who went on to be a civilian law enforcement officer with the Walnut Creek Police Department, where he served in a variety of assignments, including patrol officer, driver, training instructor, field training officer, SIU detective, undercover California DOJ narcotic task force agent, public information officer, and patrol sergeant. And also, during his time with his civilian career, uh, Michael was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal for his heroic and life-saving actions during a fatal officer-involved shooting back in 2012. Michael medically retired in 2018 and is now a dedicated advocate for awareness, prevention, education, training on post-traumatic stress injury, PTSI, and first responder suicide prevention. Michael continues to speak at law enforcement agencies all over the United States today. So on this episode, Michael and I talk about his story, about the need for more awareness regarding trauma surrounding our first responders, and about his new book called Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. If you like the sound of that, hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. Uh, as always, this podcast is sponsored by Lions Guide. And if you've been tuning in, getting value from the show, then do yourself a favor and go to lionsguide.com. Join our member community called The Pride. And for no cost to you, it's free. You get access to all kinds of free exclusive content to include Yet to be released episodes of the podcast. We got reading lists, live virtual training events, a private online group to engage with other growth-minded members, and much more. Again, joining the Pride is free, and I'm developing it all to help you break out of your rut and/or break through to that next best version of yourself by establishing clarity, building your courage, and being the true leader of your life. So check it out now. Go to lionsguide.com and join today. And all that said, let's start the show. All right, guys, on today's podcast episode, we have Mr. Michael Sugru. I got it. Yes. Uh, Air Force veteran, uh, retired law enforcement officer, um, and he was also awarded the uh, Walnut Creek Police Department's Distinguished Service Medal for his heroic and life-saving actions during a fatal officer-involved shooting back in uh, 2012. And we'll talk a little bit about that in his story. And um, and Michael's uh, dedicated uh, is a dedicated advocate for awareness, prevention, education training on post-traumatic stress injury, PTSI, and, and first responder suicide prevention. And he's been speaking at law enforcement agencies all over the U.S. I'm um, excited to have him on. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Definitely. Well, so tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you're doing these days. I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. It's where I was born and raised. And right out of college, I went straight into the Air Force as a lieutenant and I was in security forces, which is basically military police, anti-terrorism, force protection. I did that for about six and a half years and I served all over the world, South America, Europe, Middle East, um, all over the US. And when I got out, I went straight into civilian law enforcement and that was back in 2004. I was actually hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department 
which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's probably about 20 minutes outside San Francisco. And I worked there for about 14 years, bunch of different assignments from a, a training officer to an undercover uh, detective on a state drug task force, eventually a patrol supervisor. And I ultimately medically retired in 2018. And after my retirement, I kind of got started on a journey of trying to give back and help others um, to learn basically through my mistakes that I made and waiting too long to ask for help. And that's why I'm here today is to talk about the stigma behind mental health and seeking help within not just the military community, but also the first responder community. Definitely. Now, no, it's a hot topic today. Um, I don't know if I, uh, well, I, I joined your group on Facebook, the uh, First Responders First, I think it was, and um, and getting kind of involved there a little bit, just just weird journey, even myself, but learned a lot about this. Uh, I recently joined as a peer coach with uh, 22-0. I don't know if you ever heard the work of uh, Dan Jarvis. Um, he's over in, in Florida, also a uh, police officer, a uh, former army guy. And, um, you know, and just kind of breaking into this world, seeing how prevalent, you know, trauma is um, in the first responder community, not not being a first responder. Certainly, I I don't know how I would know. I don't, I don't have a lot of local close ties, but um, as I've gotten into it with um, Dan's team and just kind of really dug in, it's I mean it's a big, big, big issue, and 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 understandably, once you kind of come to understand more about it. But let's um let's go back for you for a minute. Like, where did growing up? Were you like big family, small family, city, town? Like, what's a what was life for you like before? You went to college, joined the Air Force, and then also what what made you join the Air Force? So I grew up in Oakland, California, which is a big city. And my parents actually got divorced when I was about eight years old. And my stepfather, who really is the one that raised me, he was in law enforcement. And I remember mm -hmm. all the way back to eight years old, um, I looked up to him both physically and, and figuratively, but I had this desire to be in law enforcement. And believe it or not, I was a police volunteer for the Sausalito Police Department at eight years old. I used to wash patrol cars, like file paperwork, used to ride in the annual parade with McGruff. And I even remember I had a <laughs> laminated ID card that said Sausalito Police Department. And it was ever since then, I had this desire and drive to be in law enforcement. And I literally had my whole life mapped out. I remember I went into uh, the police explorer program for the Richmond Police Department when I was about 14 years old. And in high school, I started taking criminal justice classes. And in college, uh, the reason why I went into the military is a couple of reasons. So I, I got a full scholarship through the Air Force um, where I was going to be commissioned as an officer upon graduation. And mm -hmm. so my original plan was I wanted to go into the FBI. And back then you had to have some work related experience after college before going to the FBI. You didn't just graduate and say, hey, I want to be an agent and start. So that was the plan. And so I went into the Air Force and I got my first choice, which was security forces, which is basically military police. And I loved it. I mean, I look back now and I loved my time in the military. My biggest regret is actually getting out. I wish mm -hmm. I would have stayed in longer on the reserve side. But while in the Air Force, I actually got to work with different federal agencies like the U.S. Marshals, the FBI. And once I got exposed to really what they do on a daily basis, I realized that that wasn't for me. 
that I wanted to come back to California to my my hometown area and serve here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I wanted a more hands-on job um, because when I was in the Air Force, I was getting promoted. I eventually made it up to captain and it was more of a supervisory managerial position. And I really wanted to go back and do the hands-on stuff and be out there Mm -hmm. in the field and in the trenches. And so, you know, to answer your question, I mean, literally as far back as I can remember the, the age of eight years old, I knew that I wanted a career in law enforcement. That's awesome. And yeah, I I can relate to that. I do see like the junior, like high school kid volunteers locally. So uh, that's, that's really awesome. So what made you get out of the Air Force and kind of looking back at it and kind of regretting not staying in or, or going reserves or whatever? Like, was there something that was calling you to go ahead and get out? Or was it just to go back and serve in your local community? Uh, There's a couple of reasons. On a personal note, um, I was actually single and I was thinking about the fact that I eventually wanted to settle down, eventually get married, start a family. And I knew that if I stayed on active duty in the Air Force, that I was going to continue to get deployed all over the world. And my chances of starting a family were going to be very minimized. And I also knew that with my luck, I'd probably get married. My wife would get pregnant. I'd get deployed back to the Middle East. And so I just, I made that decision that I, I wanted to get out. But what I should have done looking back is gotten out active duty, but stayed in on the reserve side. And I actually have mm-hmm. a lot of friends who did that and they're actually still in the Air Force and they're serving both for the civilian law enforcement side and in the military. And so, although I'm glad I, I got out of active duty, I really wish I would have stayed connected with, with the Air Force and the security forces world. Right, right. With with regard to you know your your stepfather being a police officer, like why was that so influential for you? Like you're looking up to him, obviously, but what was it? What 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 was it about him or the job as a police officer that you think really inspired you to want to do the same? So my biological father actually was became an alcoholic and a drug addict, and mm-hmm. we kind of had some distance between us, and he really wasn't there for me when I was growing up. And so my stepfather at a very young age came in and he truly showed me what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a father. And he was just a good hearted person. And I remember he'd come home and he'd talk about the job and things that he was doing. And I just had this excitement and this awe that I just, I wanted to know more. I wanted to see it. I wanted to be involved in it. And really he was my mentor. I mean, I look back now and he is the sole reason why I went into law enforcement and he was my hero. He was my protector all the way back then. And so I owe, I owe it all to him and, and I tell it to people, but you know, I don't consider myself half the cop that he was. I mean, he truly was a special man and he truly made a big difference, not only in his department, but in the community that he served. Yeah. Now that's, that's to be honored, man. That, and that's, that's great for him. Now, did, did you have any siblings or did he have any, any other children or anything like that? So I have two, actually three brothers, uh, one mm-hmm. older brother, and I have two uh, younger half brothers, and we're actually 21 and 14 years apart. So actually big, oh, wow. big difference there. <laughs> yeah, big difference. So, and I, I'm the only one out of the family that actually went into law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've gone into other career fields, teacher, uh, real estate, working in a lab. So I'm the only one that, that chose the law enforcement path. Right. Well, what did your uh, siblings end up doing? Uh, well, my one brother, he's actually teaching in Las Vegas. He's uh, 
got picked up by Teachers of America and he's getting his master's degree right now while teaching elementary school. And my other brother works for uh, UC Davis. He works in a laboratory. And then my oldest brother is actually very big in, in real estate here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. Awesome. The uh, so what do you one of the things that I noticed that you you mentioned and and we'll put the link in the um show notes, but uh you were on Mission 22, they did a little story about uh, a little video about your story and so on. And you were talking about like you're always in a leadership role. What what with that said, and because we talk a lot about leadership just from a perspective of, you know, whether you're leading others, you still need to kind of lead yourself, lead your own path and in a lot of like discipline and and just general mindset and success is a lot of really leadership skills. And that's in my role. Like that's what self-discipline is. Like it's really self-leadership, right? Holding yourself accountable and, and all those other things. But what, you know, with that kind of rapid ascension for you and, and be, find yourself in these leadership roles, team leads, like what, what makes good, what makes for good leadership in your experience? Well, I'll tell you what, I think it's just humanity. It's being human. It's being, yourself. It's being open. It's being transparent. It's being in touch with your people. And, you know, I'm going to be honest here and follow my sword because, um, you know, while I was in the military, I consider myself a good leader, even early on in my civilian law enforcement career. But there was a very tragic incident that happened to me um, as a brand new patrol sergeant, as a supervisor. And that incident and what followed after that, initially, I became actually a horrible leader. And I became disconnected with my people. And what's ironic is that going through this tragedy and then going through a journey of recovery and healing, I think actually today made me a much better person than I ever was. And I think mm -hmm. it actually made me a much better leader knowing that side of me because um, prior to that incident, I was so focused on, like you said, the ascension and getting different assignments and getting different promotions. And I was. I was getting every single thing that I put in for, every single thing that I wanted. But that really wasn't what was important. What's important is our people. It's caring for our people and not losing sight of that. And there was a period where I honestly lost sight of my people. With regard to you, like up until then, do you feel like uh, when you say lost sight, are you saying you just weren't uh, as focused on the role of a leader before the incident and kind of growing and kind of having more, more of an empathetic side to your people underneath you. I'm, I'm just trying to sort out a little bit, like from a leadership perspective, um, how different you were, you know, before and after the incident. Like, so what was your leadership like before the incident, let's say, compared to what well, it was after? I think to answer the question, I'll have to bring in a specific incident, which kind of changed the course that I was on. And this mm -hmm. ties in what is not often talked about, but it's called administrative betrayal. And this is very common in both the military and the first responder world. And so let me take you back to when I was a brand new patrol sergeant. I was involved in a fatal shooting, uh, basically where a, a man with a butcher knife was trying to kill a couple and then tried to kill myself and my fellow officers. Mm -hmm. And I had to take his life to save lives. And so that was a very traumatic incident. And it wasn't the incident itself that changed who I was as a leader. But what happened was, is I started isolating. I started having constant nightmares. I was cutting off social ties with my family and friends. I started drinking too much. I literally started going down a downward spiral. 
And about five months after my shooting, I was involved in a court proceeding. It was the very first legal proceeding after my shooting. And this was what was in an open courtroom. There was a jury there. Uh, there was a judge. It was open to the public. So there was reporters there, several people from my department, even my wife at the time. And by this point, we're starting to have marital problems big time because of what I'm doing, my isolation, my drinking, my distancing. And so during this trial, this civil proceeding, I ended up breaking down in the courtroom. I literally started bawling in an open courtroom with like 60 different people, a jury, I mean, coworkers. And I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed because I had never shown emotion like that in a room filled with people. And at the time, I thought that that was weakness. And so long story short, we ended up getting through the court proceeding. About two weeks later, we got the finding that we wanted. And I ended up getting called into a supervisor's office. And at this point, I'm a still on probation for my my sergeant promotion. Um, We literally saved lives. We got through this court proceeding. And I thought for sure I was getting called in to get kudos or accolades. And that's not what happened. What happened was is that my quote unquote leadership at the time questioned the genuineness of my emotions. So they questioned my very integrity and both said and inferred that I was acting or putting on a show. And I was completely shocked because here I was a grown man, a prior air force captain, you know, police sergeant, never shown emotions. And I was ashamed that I did. And now my quote unquote leaders are questioning the very genuineness integrity of that. And so during that meeting, instead of sticking up for myself or acknowledging that I needed help, I made a conscious decision that I was never going to show emotion again. I was going to prove them wrong never show emotion. And what happened is I became a total asshole. That's where I just put up this front. Like I didn't care if people came to me with their problems to myself. I was thinking, you guys have no idea what it means to have a real problem. And so that's what disconnected me from my people is putting up this front that I didn't care when deep down, I really did care. But I knew that if I were to show any emotions again, that might jeopardize my promotion. It might jeopardize my career. It might jeopardize everything. The uh, the proceedings, the court proceedings that you're talking about, that was for your incident with the uh, the individual with the butcher knife, or was that for something completely different? It, it was. So there were several okay. uh, proceedings, but this one was a civil proceeding. Uh, yeah. It happens in my county anytime that law enforcement is associated with a death. So it could be yeah. something like where somebody hangs themselves in a jail setting, or if you go to a call and somebody kills themselves in front of you, or in this case, a police shooting, it's a requirement in our County that they have a, an open hearing to kind of, you know, lower the cloak and and be transparent and show the public what happened during this incident. Right. And had you triggered about the event? Because obviously it's a traumatic experience to take someone's life in the line of duty, you know, had you triggered before this or did, was this when you you know broke down in the courtroom or in the proceedings, was that a surprise even to you? Well, the, it was huge. I remember when we first were sitting in the courtroom and they played the dispatch tapes, the radio recordings, you know, from the dispatcher to the officers. And that was what literally brought me right back to that night. I remember I started sweating profusely. I mean, mm-hmm. my stomach started turning. I literally felt like I was going to pass out and I literally felt like I was back in that condominium with the guy with the butcher knife. And to make matters worse, 
I mean, literally feet from me was the family of the man that I killed, but he also had an identical twin brother. So this mm. same face that now has been in my nightmares for five months that I just can't get out of my mind is literally in the courtroom next to me. And so it was like this perfect storm of, you know, being brought back to that night. And then when I got up on the stand, the judge basically said, hey, Sergeant, can you tell us what happened that night? And I'm literally sitting there, you know, on an elevated chair, the jury's three feet from me. And I look to my left and there's an entire courtroom of people just staring at me. And it was when I got to the part of him coming down the stairs with the butcher knife is when I just lost it. I just absolutely lost it and started bawling like a baby. What do you, and, and that had not, so this really brought it back. Um, I don't know if you, I'm currently in the middle of um, The Body Keeps Score. Have you read that book? Oh, phenomenal book. I actually, yeah. it, it's interesting because uh, you mentioned Mission 22, but I'm in a year long program with them right now. And mm -hmm. we have required reading every phase of the program. And I had to read that book. And it is literally, I think, one of the best books out there to explain post-traumatic stress injury and to explain the impact on the body, not just for first responders, military, but for anybody. I mean, phenomenal mm -hmm. book. Yeah, it was as you were kind of reciting that story, the um, it reminded me how it talks about like this, the trauma in your brain, like someone who tries to recall a memory from something in the past, it, it may be different, a different perspective in the future, but someone who's recalling trauma because it's so near, like they can recite it exactly, you know, five months later, 10 years later, because it's just, it's so intense. And you were just kind of reminding me, like telling in your story, just of, of that, how it kind of came back to life for you here five months later. And yeah, no, it's a, it's a great book. Just kind of, it really, Again, to your point about just the awareness of trauma and the impact it has on people. And really, you know, certainly, you know, you never know what someone's going through. You know, never know what people have gone through and, and these types of things. Now, from the perspective of, you know, how do you know um, Dr. Springer, for example? So, so you're, you've got a book coming out, co-author with Dr. Springer, Relentless Courage. Uh, how, how did Dr. Springer come into your life, you know, and how did you get to get to know her? We actually met a couple of years ago. Um, believe it or not, it's because of LinkedIn. I have a very big presence on social media, especially on LinkedIn. And I was always posting things on there about post-traumatic stress injury, suicide prevention, um, always sharing interviews that I'd been in. And so she actually reached out to me and wanted to connect. And so we had a phone conversation initially and she was telling me about the work that she's done with combat veterans and the work that she's doing now as far as a uh, with Stella and the stellate ganglion block, which is actually a medical procedure, which is to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And so initially we just had a good conversation and Ironically enough, during that first phone conversation, she she asked me, she's like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I told her, well, actually, I have. I said, but, you know, partly because of the post-traumatic stress, I'm just literally burnt out. Like my concentration's not there. My focus isn't there. And I did over 20 years of report writing, both in the military and in law enforcement, literally was just burnt out. And so I, I kind of mentioned to her that if I ever met the right person, to collaborate with on writing a book, you know, that I would definitely consider that. And mm -hmm. so we kind of ended the conversation 
we stayed in touch and we were sharing different articles and different things we were doing. And I believe like six or seven months later, we had another phone conversation and Dr. Springer was like, look, she's like, you have such a compelling story that I think will truly, truly resonate with others and truly help save lives. And she's like, I want to work with you and write your book. And so I knew at that very moment, and I'd gotten previous offers from other people, but it just didn't feel right. And so at that very moment, and now we're talking over a year and a half ago, we started this collaboration and process to bring forward this book, which is coming out in literally just a couple of weeks. And the book is called Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And this book is very unique. So there's 15 chapters. Um, every single chapter is split into two parts. The first part of every chapter is told my story and my voice. And the second part of every chapter, Doc Springer breaks everything down. She explains everything in a global sense. So mm. not just that first responders and military, but anybody on the street, any citizen on the street will understand it. They will see the impact of being a first responder. They'll see the human side behind the badge and they'll see the toll of the job. And this book is absolutely going to save lives. And, you know, to, to share something super exciting, um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who is very well known, he's been out there for over 20 years. Um, he's written 10 books. He's a speaker on killing, on combat. And he's really one of the first pioneers to talk about post-traumatic stress, to talk about resiliency and to talk about you know, the warrior mindset. And he actually wrote the forward for our new book that's getting ready to come out. So I am super, super excited about this project. That is awesome. And so getting into your story and one of the things that Doc Springer said on your um, Mission 22 video was getting out there and destroying the lie that, you know, these feelings that first responders have post related to the impact of post-traumatic stress um, that it's just them, right? And talking about the the culture of this stoic, you know, no emotion like you went through, like your reaction to your leaders was that. So what is the impact? What what do people like myself who are not first responders, what do we what is the impact of PTS on our officers out there on the streets? What are and and even for those who may need to speak up, like what what is it? What what are the effects of post traumatic stress on our first responders? Well, the most obvious is the suicide epidemic. So most people mm -hmm. aren't aware, but for all first responders, especially law enforcement, we are much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. And I'm going to say that one more time: we are much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. And so. Really take pause and think about that. As law enforcement, we spend years and hundreds and thousands of hours over our career training on firearms, on defensive tactics, on arrest and control techniques, on emergency driving, all these things. But we don't talk about the toll of the job, the impact of what we see. And the facts are that most people, the average person who is not in the military, not a first responder, they may have one or two traumatic incidents in a lifetime, maybe more, maybe less. But for most law enforcement officers, we're talking hundreds of traumatic incidents over a career. 
You know, you talk about a 30-year career, you're talking upwards of 300, sometimes over 500 traumatic incidents. And what are those? Well, the ones that we see all the time are child deaths, child Mm -hmm. abuse, either fatal car accidents or very serious injury car accidents, suicides, homicides, domestic violence. I mean, even just natural deaths. I mean, I've been to tons and tons of natural deaths. And we see things that most people never have to see. And the facts are that we are human. I mean, I know that we're trained to feel like we're superheroes and we're invincible and we're expected to go into the most dangerous situations, like an active shooter situation. We have to go in. We have to take control. We have to neutralize that threat. And we're trained for it and we're going to do it. But the facts are we never take that pause to address the human side of this, to address the toll of this. And this, what we see would affect anybody. And so just imagine, like I said, the normal person, maybe one, maybe two traumatic incidents in the entire lifetime. Now take a first responder who sees hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents. And if you add the culture of not talking about it, and then we turn to negative coping mechanisms like alcohol, drugs, extramarital affairs, gambling, porn addiction. So we go out and we seek these things that numb us, you know, to make us feel better, but they actually make things much, much worse. And then we become detached and disconnected from our family, from our loved ones. That's why we have a sky sky rate of divorce. I mean, the things that we see, it takes a toll. And so I'm here to show people that you're not alone, that the feelings that you have are normal, but I suffered in silence for over four years and it almost cost my life. And so I want people to learn from my mistakes and not wait so long to ask for help because that waiting could actually cost your life. And what do what do first responders need to know about PTS like that? That maybe what, for example, or something that uh, an officer dealing with trauma and what if they didn't, what do they need to know is trauma or PTS rather? Um, like, what are we talking about? Like, what are they feeling? What are they experiencing? Or, or what did, what did you feel and experience going through it that, that you learned was PTS? Well, I remember initially, so let me, let me take a step backwards. So, you know, prior to my shooting, I had been an officer for eight years on the civilian side. So I'd been involved in hundreds of traumatic incidents and I never really acknowledged them. I never really addressed them. And I was just going on with my daily business. I was operational. I was getting the job done. And the and, best and Michael, way to when you say it, like, when you say you never acknowledge them or address them, like, what do you mean? Like, what, what should you have done? Well, I want to paint a picture first. So imagine like an empty okay. jar. And so when you start your job, you have a little little bit of things in the jar from your childhood or from growing up. And then as you go out through your career, these traumatic incidents, the jar starts filling and filling and filling. In my case, after the shooting, my jar overflowed. And it was almost like too late at that point. And so mm. what I'm saying is that if I were to have dressed these little traumas along the way, my jar would have never overflowed. It would have never gotten full. And I firmly believe that 
if we normalize talking about this stuff, if we normalize talking about our feelings and not just for the huge incidents like an officer involved shooting, but you know, those fatal car accidents, the suicide, the domestic violence, if we just normalize it and we talk about it, I truly believe we can get through an entire career and make it out healthy on the other side. But in my case, I never talked about it. I never acknowledged it. I just stayed operational. So the best way to kind of describe that is that I'm going along my career. All these traumatic incidents are happening and they're affecting me inside. I'm just not admitting to it. I'm not acknowledging it. And it got to the point where it was too late. And that's why ultimately I had to medically retire because I had waited far too long. And if we back up and we start this conversation in our training academies, when when officers are actually training to be police officers and we bring people in like myself, veterans who have gone through the career and they just talk about the human side, if we then bring that into the training program within the departments and at varying levels of leadership, that's how we normalize it. And that's what we need to do is we need to change the culture, change the stigma and just acknowledge that we're human. And this stuff does take a toll. Hey guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guy community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique. Like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And you know, what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lions Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet, but exceed those demands on you and in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you enjoy the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level and join me on lionsguide.com and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the pride today. Now back to the show. That was going to be my next question is what do they need to hear? You know, that to, to break this culture of stoic, not not talking about it. Like what, what do they need to know? What, and, and I guess let's go to the leadership because it sounds like your leadership failed you in that regard and kind of promoted this culture of, you know, anti-emotion or, or, you know, not, not, not acknowledging your perfectly human, you know, emotions around the situation. Like what do they need to know? Like as far as leaders and these guys coming up, you know, to, to break this, the stigma. Well, I think like we talked about in the beginning, what makes a good leader? A good leader is one who cares for their people. A good leader is one who acknowledges their own feelings, their own emotions. They, they acknowledge the fact that this stuff does take a toll. And so, you know, if we're talking about police chiefs at the very top, we need those leaders who in an open forum, when they have their 
monthly training or annual training or monthly meetings, they can go in in front of the department and they can acknowledge these things. They can just talk about it like they're normal, not like they're abnormal. And that filters down though. Like for instance, I was a patrol sergeant. And so I would run patrol teams and every single day we would have lineup before we hit the street. And we would use that time and talk about calls from the previous shift. We would talk about administrative things, but what we should do is if it was necessary, and I'm not talking about every day, I'm just talking about if there was an incident where the team was at, myself as that leader, I should start the conversation, say, look, today we're not going to talk about last week's calls that don't matter. I want to bring up that fatal car accident that we all had to respond to two days ago. And I want to, I want to share how that's affected me. I want to talk about how that little girl who was in the sidewalk, I just couldn't get her image out of my head. I kept seeing my own daughter's face attached to that. I just couldn't get it out. And then, you know, I'm talking about it and then I'm starting the conversation. So I'm leading it. I'm not expecting my people to start that conversation. I'm leading it for them, but I'm being vulnerable and I'm sharing something which is going to make them feel comfortable. It's going to build that trust level because that's the key is that there has to be trust. You have to know that you can share things and that your career is not going to have negative ramifications, that you're not going to be have that held against you. And if I take that a step further back, I was a field training officer. And what that is, is they train the officers that come out of the police academy. They also train officers who switch agencies and work for new departments. And I remember back when I was in training before I became a training officer, and we use gallows humor. That's where we joke about these horrific things that we see, we kind of brush it off and tell other people that, you know, no, that didn't bother me. And I remember one of my very first calls that I went to as a brand new officer out of the academy, I was literally in an autopsy and I saw this obese woman who had been burnt to death and they're cutting her open. I'm seeing charred flesh fall to the ground. And it was literally the most disgusting, I mean, thing I've ever seen, the worst smell I've ever smelt. And to this day, I'll never forget that incident. But I remember after we left and when I got back to my patrol car with my training officer, they made a joke about not being able to eat barbecue for you know several weeks. Mm. And that's gallows humor. That's what we do is we joke about it. It's not because we're sick minded or we really think that's funny. It's because it's our way of saying, I'm not going to acknowledge that. I'm not going to admit that that was horrible like that, that those images I just can't get out of my head. I'm just going to joke about it. I'm going to pretend like it doesn't bother me. And then we, that's how that culture, it starts when you're a brand new officer and it carries on through your career. Yeah. And like I said, it works until it doesn't work. Sure. And, and like you said, then it fills that jar and then boom, you've got a incidents. It's just kind of, um, it just starts to build on top and on top more and more. And now, like you said, you're seeing hundreds of incidents. And I mean, do you feel... You know, so what you're saying, I, I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that there needs to be some good rapport with the leadership because I imagine, you know, tell me like, what is the the first responder, the officer concerned about with bringing up these issues? Are they worried about their job? Are they worried about being, you know, talked down to like maybe your case was a little bit like, what are they, what are they worried about? Absolutely. So I speak all across the country and you know, depending on different different parts of the country, some are more progressive than others. Some are more advanced and more accepting of what I'm talking about. But 
a lot of agencies are still behind the times. And literally when I go to speak, I'll have lines of people afterwards that come up and talk to me and share very personal things. And just recently I had an officer who shared that when they tried to reach out for help, that their admin came down upon them and they had negative repercussions and they were kind of outcast within the circle of their fellow law enforcement officers. And, you know, I'm, I'm never going to mention a specific agency or where I was at, but I hear this more often than not. And, you know, my incident was back in 2012, but I didn't ask for help until basically 2017. And things are changing. Things are getting better. But in so many places, they're not. And it's not being addressed. And employees, like you said, they feel like they're alone. They feel like there's no one that can help them, no one that will understand them. They feel like there's no safe place to go without having ramifications on their career. You know, whether that means that they're going to be pressured into leaving or retiring, or maybe it's going to affect future promotions or assignments, or maybe that they're going to lose the trust of their fellow officers because their fellow officers are going to look down upon them and they're going to see them as being weak. And, and that's the farthest from the truth. I can tell you that after four years of struggling, me raising my hand and asking for help, it is the most courageous thing I've ever done in my life. It was nothing I did in the military. It was nothing I did on the streets as a police officer. It was literally asking for help. Hmm. What was the road to recovery for you? It well, it was a rocky road. Um, I will tell you that initially <clears throat> what happened was I ended up breaking down on my car for two hours on the anniversary of my shooting. It was actually uh, December 27th, 2016. And literally I lost my marriage. Um, I'd gone through a federal lawsuit. I was getting diagnosed with repeated cancer. I lost, lost my stepfather who I mentioned was my hero. He died at 58 from stage four cancer very quickly. Um, literally everything in my life was falling apart. And my best friend, he's a Vietnam veteran. He's also a former reserve officer. He's in the video that you had mentioned from Mission 22, The Stigma of Help. And he tried to kill himself when I was on duty. Hmm. And this was my best friend. And I had no idea that he was suffering like he was. And so about a month after he took his own life, I literally just all I could think about was, how is my daughter going to feel? Is she going to blame herself when I'm not here? And that is what caused me to turn that around and finally ask for help. And it took the attempt on his own life to save my life. And I reminded him of that every single time I see him is that he saved my life. And so that day I finally picked up the cell phone. I called my watch commander and I said, I can't do this anymore. I need help. And he was phenomenal. I remember he talked to me for a while. He, he made the notifications. He told me not to worry <clears throat> that he said he was going to get the resources that I needed. And right away, I started talking to our uh, contracted therapist within my agency and she was very good. And a couple of weeks after that, I got transitioned into another therapist who was culturally competent. And this is the key, absolute key is that when I talk about first responders getting help and asking for help, they need culturally competent therapists. 
And those are therapists who only work with first responders. They understand us. They understand the trauma that we see. And this therapist was absolutely amazing. And I remember on the first day that I met her, she shared a very deep, dark, personal story with me about her own life. And that's what built trust because trust is key to this whole thing. And I knew at that moment that I could literally trust her with my life. And that's when I started opening up. I started sharing these things, these thoughts that I was having. And one of the best things she ever did was she told me about these first responder support meetings and they have them all over the U.S. And these are confidential meetings that are not associated with any agencies. Um, oftentimes they're like 12 step meetings or they're just discussion meetings. And I started going to these and that's where I saw that I wasn't alone. I started meeting other first responders, firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, police officers who were sharing these thoughts, these stories, the things they were dealing with in an open room. And literally that's where I saw that I wasn't alone and that there was help and there was hope. And is there anything you would tell a first responder that may be having these feelings, but maybe they do or don't have confidence in their leadership? What would you recommend that they do as, as their first step? So there's actually several hotlines and text lines, which are only for first responders. Mm -hmm. And um, I post those all the time on my LinkedIn page, as well as my Sergeant Michael Sergru Facebook and the first responders first uh, Facebook pages. But there's several lines that are staffed by other first responders. Um, some are active, some are retired. Like I said, it's 100% confidential, it's free. And you can call or text 24 seven. And I, I think that is the best step because no matter where you're at, if you're in the privacy of your own car, if you're at home, I mean, it doesn't matter where you're at or what time of day it is. You can pick up your phone and you can either talk to or text somebody who's going to get it. They're going to understand it. And they're also going to be able to point you in the right direction for the resources that you need. That is the very first step. With regard to the leaders out there who may feel that they're not doing enough or they need to do more for their agency, their organization, where where could they start to improve, you know, the, the again, knock down the, the stigma, you know, start promoting, you know, a, a mentally health environment uh, in their organization? Well, agencies are doing this now. And so I've had agencies that have reached out to myself and there's several other first responders out there that are doing the same work that I'm doing, that they're out there speaking, they're sharing their very deep personal stories of struggle, and then ultimately their journey of recovery and survival, which is key. And so it's having people like that to come into the agency during training days and talk about this stuff openly to facilitate conversations to begin the conversations. But the other side of that, and I've mentioned this, is the leaders themselves. They have the power to share their own stories, to talk about the toll of the job on their own lives, on their own families. You know, they don't have to put up this image of being perfect because I did that for years. You want to put up this image that I'm the perfect person, I'm the perfect leader. And that's not true. We all deal with things. We all suffer. We all have trauma. We all have 
family things going on, personal things going on. And so those leaders that are out there listening to this, start with yourself. It doesn't cost anything. What it does take is for you to be open, honest, and transparent, and willing to have the courage to share that in front of the people that you lead. That's how you really start this conversation. That's how you start to change this culture. Absolutely. The With regard to PTS and the ongoing maintenance, do you feel, you know, since getting more into the topic and, and obviously out there advocating, do you feel like we can just have better structures, like you mentioned earlier, after the events that can ensure, because, you know, right, it seems like law enforcement right now, just with generally the stigma I would say wrongfully so about law enforcement in this country today. Um, you know, it seems hard to keep our police officers in place, you know, as it is. And now we've got, you know, them dealing with traumas. Do you feel that, you know, with the right education and right systems, we can keep our officers healthy and in the line of duty, mentally secured, I'd say, right? That, that you know, because it, the, way, the way we're kind of discussing this, you know, you could think like a lot of these incidents that we see, you know, maybe as a result of this culmination of, of trauma that, that our officers are walking around dealing with. Absolutely. You know, and healthy officers are going to make better officers. And you mentioned mm-hmm. it, that officers are retiring in record numbers across the entire country, even other countries like Canada, Australia, and officers are just leaving left and right. And almost every single agency out there is understaffed. They're having a hard time filling positions. And now when you take not only the trauma and the culture within the job, but now, as you mentioned, the anti-law enforcement sediment that is happening everywhere. And so imagine why would you want to sign up for this job where literally you're putting your life on the line every single day for complete strangers, knowing that you're leaving your own family and you may not come back to them, literally trying to save complete strangers. And now You don't even have support from the public. You don't have support from administrators, from city governments, from county governments, even state governments. And so our officers need support at all levels. We need it from the community. We need it from the administration of our own agencies. And we also need it from our leaders, our city leaders, our county leaders, and our state leaders. Because if you don't have the support, no one's going to ask for help. No one's going to admit they have problems, that they have issues. And Mm -hmm. so we need the support now more than ever, but also on the flip side of that, and I think this is where my book is also going to help with this, is that we as law enforcement, we need to do a better job in educating the public Mm -hmm. about what it is that we see, about what it is that we, you know, deal with every single day and the effects of that. And also being more open and transparent about why we do the things we do or why we react certain ways, you know, maybe educate them on our training and and put them in scenarios, whether it's citizen academies or we have like, they call it uh, use of force scenarios or force option simulators where you bring community leaders or reporters in and put them in these situations where people are coming at you with a knife or people are, running up to you and want to, want to fight you. I mean, these real world scenarios that our officers see every single day. So we need to do better and show the human side to the public so that they can see that we, we are just like them. 
But where we're different is that we're willing to go out there and put our lives on the line every single day. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and that'll, again, build that rapport, like even amongst the leadership, amongst the community, so that you know who is the officer behind the badge, because we're, we're all perfectly human. They're out there doing a really, as you put it, you know, really tough job, you know, dealing with these traumas, you know, every day, you know, constantly throughout the year. And that that all builds up. And, and you know, and I think that even, you know, I, and I appreciate what you're doing with the awareness of that so that we can, so as a community, we can support these officers and first responders in a right way so they can feel welcomed and be, you know, more open and honest about what they're, what they're dealing with and hopefully, you know, not stay in the state of, you know, I would say, you know, th- that's got to be a really tough mentally aside this trauma aside but like you like you say like to be walking around feeling this sentiment you know that that somehow our police officers are the bad guys right you know and is that do you feel that's a part of you know one of the main reasons or up there with regards to the officers you know retiring out in droves today absolutely you know i want to paint a a picture for you as well so being prior military um, everybody acknowledges the fact that when our soldiers go to combat, whether they're Iraq, Afghanistan, people are aware of PTSD. They're aware of the, the toll of the job. And so when our soldiers go to combat zones or combat areas, they're in a set area, known hostile or danger zone with a known threat for a defined period of time. Maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year, maybe it's a couple times in a career. The difference is that our law enforcement are literally in combat every single day. And we're talking 20 to 30 years. You know, you mentioned with this anti-law enforcement sentiment, the facts are is that we have to constantly be on edge, on guard 24-7 because everyone is a potential threat. I mean, we see the stories of officers getting gunned down at restaurants or coffee shops or in their patrol cars or ambushed or followed home off duty, or even their families targeted. And so imagine, I mean, just pause for a second and think about that. We, we acknowledge our combat veterans, right? And they're in a known danger zone for a defined period. But right. our law enforcement are in literally combat in danger zone every single day for an entire career. And now it's not just on duty, it's off duty. We have to be worried about people following us home. We have to be worried about people recognizing us when we're out with our own families, you know, recognizing that we are in law enforcement. And imagine that stress, just that stress alone and the toll on a person, not even talking about the trauma that we see, but just that heightened awareness, always on edge, always on guard, always worried about those around you. Yeah, that's compounding because even in reading the body keep score, it talks about, uh, you know, the necessity to have a safe space. So in the way you describe that, it's almost like they don't have a safe space. They're on ultra alert on duty, obviously, but then it's it's coming home with them, whereas maybe that combat veteran has come home, right? They're, they're in a safe space. Um, do you feel, I mean, has it has it truly gotten worse? You know, it feels like it's gotten worse over these last 10 years with regard to this this sentiment and I mean, it's, it's gotten worse, right? I mean, because you were in law enforcement for, for two decades, has it just gotten that bad over, over the time? It's gotten much, much worse. And, you know, we talk about this in the book, but if you look at how our Vietnam veterans were treated when they came back from war, 
It's exactly how our law enforcement is being treated now. And I know that people are going to look back 20, 30 years from now and they're going to regret it. They're going to regret how they treated our heroes, just like we as a society regret how we treated our Vietnam veterans. And it is much worse. You know, the media is constantly putting negative stories out there. And let's face it, there are bad cops, but 99.9% of police officers are good and they're doing the job for the right reason. But you don't hear about them. You hear about that less than 1%. You know, it's on the media, it's on constantly, and it's just negative, negative, negative. And so that's really adding to this as well, is when all you're seeing, your only exposure is negative stories about law enforcement, that's going to take a toll. And, you know, one misconception is that the public probably thinks that officers are involved in shootings all the time. And the fact is that most officers are never involved in a fatal police shooting. I mean, less than 1% of officers are involved in fatal shootings. My own father who worked in the, one of the most dangerous cities, not only in the Bay Area, but the country, was never in a fatal shooting. Mm. I mean, it just doesn't happen. But when you watch the news, you would think that officers are shooting people all the time. Mm. And it's actually a very, very rare occurrence. And when it does happen, I'm living proof that it takes a toll on us. And this will affect me for the rest of my life. I have to live with that. Now, I think that's a real impactful way to put it that because I would agree the way we're treating our law enforcement officers today seems, unfortunately, very much like we treated our vets coming home from Vietnam, you know, and that's and you're right. I think we're going to look back on that and, and hopefully be ashamed of ourselves. And and I hope we start turning the corner on this. And I and, and I appreciate, again, the, the work you're doing out there to kind of bring the awareness and, and looking forward to to reading a book today, what are you doing to, for mental maintenance? You know, what, what are some of the things that you're doing to kind of stay in a, a good spot with yourself dealing with the, you know, obviously you had the trauma, you're living with the trauma. Um, what, what are some things that you're doing today to kind of maintain your own mental and, uh, well-being? Well, first and foremost, I go to the gym. I go to the gym every single day, two hours a day during the week with two of my friends. Mm-hmm. One's a veteran, one's an active police officer. And, So it's the combination of not just physical activity and working out, but it's being with two of my brothers who I can talk with, I can share things with, I can open up to. And so I have that every single day. And usually on the weekends, I go hiking with my girlfriend, with my daughter. So again, we're out there in nature. We're staying physically fit. I mean, for me, staying active and physically fit is absolutely critical to my journey and recovery from post-traumatic stress. Um, I also see a therapist still. I see a therapist every two weeks. And the thing is, a therapist is just somebody to talk to. You know, we have this negative stigma attached to, oh my God, I got to see a therapist or I'm Mm -hmm. going to therapy. It's literally, it's a trusted environment where I can talk about things. I can Mm -hmm. talk about my relationship. I can talk about work trauma. I can talk about just personal. I can talk about whatever I want. And I can know I've got somebody actively listening who's going to give me good advice, who's not going to judge me. It's going to be in a safe, trusted environment. And that's key as well. You know, you got to be doing these things. And, you know, there's a couple other things. I'm in a year-long program with Mission 22. It's called Recovery and Resilience. Mm-hmm. And part of that program, as I mentioned earlier, is required reading. Uh, books like The Body Keeps the Score. I've been reading several books about the Vietnam War 
and the toll of that on our soldiers. Um, also, I have a health coach that I meet with every couple of weeks. Um, I'm taking certain supplements for physical and mental health. Um, I recently had the stellate ganglion block done, which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you know, the thing is like, I'm always doing maintenance. You know, I'm doing a lot better than I was years ago, but the facts are that you need to do the work. You know, you don't just do one thing and now you're better and you're cured and you go on with your life. In my case, I will be addressing this probably for the rest of my life. But mm-hmm. now I have routines, I have positive coping mechanisms, and I have safe, trusted environments that I can go to, including those first responder support meetings, which I still go to. And I can open up, I can share, I can know that I'm not alone. Yeah, and I can imagine. And, and, that's, and that's in all things, right? We've got to stay working on ourselves. We can't, you know, it's like when you let it go, the weeds grow, you know, and, and they start creeping back. And so why well, honor you for, for putting in the work and, and certainly putting in the work to put the book together and your mission to this. Um, when, when's the book coming out? Where will we be able to find it? So it's going to be on Amazon and Kindle. Um, literally, it's in formatting as we speak. So the book is done. And we're just waiting to get it back from the formatter, give it a proofread, and then we're going to be uploading it to Amazon. So I would say at the most, two to three weeks, might even be sooner, but we're talking a couple of weeks and it's going to be out there on Amazon. So so by May 2022, it'll be out there for for us to check out. For Absolutely. Sure. I would say it's going to be out there before May. So I would say awesome. mid to late April, it's going to be on Amazon and I'll be posting updates on all my social media sites. Um, as soon as we have a date, it's going to be on there. Good. Oh, man. Well, congrats to you on that. Are you guys going to read it together? Like you're going to read your part and Doc Springer's going to read her part. You're going to do the audio version? So initially we'll have the paperback and the Kindle and eventually we are going to do the audio version. It will be in our own voices. And awesome. that's that's several, several months out. So, But eventually it will be done. And um, yeah, it's going to be amazing. I mean, this... I am biased, but this book will save lives, hundred percent. Absolutely, will save lives. I agree. I mean, it, this topic—it's a tough one to chew through. It's, it's, but it's necessary for the awareness piece alone, right? That first responders, officers, certainly combat veterans, and anyone, like you said, that that's dealt with trauma. That you're not alone, you know, and and it's okay to talk with someone about. It. It's probably the most important thing you can do is start talking to someone about it. So, any uh, final words uh, of advice to anyone out there on on your way out, Mike? I just want people to know, like I said, you're not alone. That there is hope and there is help. It took me a long time to ask for help, but I'm living proof today. I have a whole new life on the other side. I have a better life today than I've ever had. I'm a better person today than I ever have been. And so just know that all you have to do is raise your hand and ask for help. Awesome. Mike, where could we find you online? So LinkedIn, uh, you can definitely find me on there. I'm on there every single day. You can shoot me a message. Um, I run a couple different pages. On both Facebook and Instagram, there's a Sergeant Michael Sugru page. And then there's also a first responders first page as well. Well, Michael, again, honored to have you on. I appreciate you sharing your story and this is definitely going to help people. And so you're doing good work, man. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for coming on. All right. Take care.